Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Emerging Critics podcast. In this episode, I talk with Emerging Critics mentor and Creative Scotland Literature Officer Kate Welsh. Kate offers perspectives on reviewing for both print and online platforms, and we discuss the complementary relationship between the two. Other areas of conversation include pitching to editors and the editorial process, book vlogging and the old chestnut of books coverage on TV, and criticism within the literary ecosystem and its economic realities. It's my pleasure to be here with Kate Welsh, who is a writer, critic, Creative Scotland Literature Officer, and one of the mentors of a group of emerging critics. So Kate, I thought that we would just talk about um, criticism in the 21st century and the new, or not so new, or transitional perhaps uh, formats in transition, that make up the shape of criticism uh, as you see it. Fantastic. Um, And it's an interesting one because I uh, switch back and forth between um, kind of very new digital criticism and writing for uh, more established traditional publications um, like The Independent or The Guardian or The um, the Literary Review, um, sort of between that and places like uh, For Book's Sake or BuzzFeed Books or Book Riot. I think it's a hugely exciting time to be a critic, um, as well as being a completely terrifying time, um, as it is to be any kind of freelancer right now. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, the majority of jobs out there are freelance roles. Um, but it's, there's a huge scope for, um, not just for doing things differently, but for doing things in a, uh, in a traditional way, the same kind of, you know, 1,000 word, 2,000 word, um, really detailed pieces but for different audiences and perhaps in slightly different styles, there's a massive um, there's a massive wave of new, exciting new voices coming through, um, particularly from voices who have been silenced in the past. There's far more women, um, particularly in sort of the book vlogging, booktube sphere. Yeah. Um, many, many more people of colour. Um, people are talking about disability criticism, um, LGBT issues... It's a really exciting period, um, but it's also a period when criticism is in massive transition. Um, So so it's very scary for a lot of people. Yeah, so there's uh, increasing diversity and variety and um, also breadth of coverage as well is increasing. So that's something to Mm -hmm. be excited about. Absolutely. The the coverage isn't always paid or paid fairly. and That's a big sticking point right now. So that's... Would you say that that was one of the most difficult challenges absolutely I mean both yeah. for myself as a, as a freelancer and also um, for supporting my um, my mentees it's yeah. I can just point them to a lot of places where they can develop their style and get published mm. I can point them to far fewer um, that will pay them adequately yes and also that will offer them training in absolutely some way. and that's a really crucial thing because um, the editorial process has yeah. hitherto been um, one that shaped writers Absolutely. and allowed them to develop voices. Yeah. I think that editorial process is still there in many online sites. Um, it's not a given, mm. um, particularly if you're self-publishing in that kind of form where you're doing a blog or something right. like that. Yes. That level isn't there. Um, but for a, a literary website like LitHub or Book Riot mm. um, or For Book's Sake, those layers are still very much there. Um, I got my very kind of early start reviewing for websites like The F Word um, which is a feminist culture website, yeah. um, and for book's sake. And I learned a huge amount from the editorial team there. Um, but most of us kind of learned on the fly. 
Right. Um, I don't have any formal journalism training. So no. I'm, a lot of the things I want to do with this programme is give people the kind of training and support that I I'd kind of scrabbled together for myself piecemeal. Absolutely, and I think that um, it's, it might actually be worth just talking about the, the sort of, st- almost the step-by-step mm-hmm. process. Sometimes you're pitching to an editor, and other times an editor's sending a book to you. How, yeah. how does it work? Um, for me, my experience, it's about 50-50. Mm. Um, with some publications, um, particularly places that I review for more sporadically, I'll you know get in touch with them every, every so often. Every time something comes out that I'm really keen to review, um, well, equally they can they can come to me, um, yeah. and that's one thing that a lot of people when they're starting out don't really realise how it works. Yeah. Um, you do have to establish that relationship um, at the very mm-hmm. beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very it's very rare to get commissioned by somebody you've never written for before. Right. Um, and even then, it tends to be on the basis of oh you've worked for these publications, somebody recommended you. Um, a lot of it is still word word of mouth. And so when you're pitching to a literary editor, uh, how should it just be a sort of short, very short email? Absolutely. Introductory sentence, here's who I am, here's why I think a review is... Absolutely. I mean, for me, the best uh, query format, having been a a features commissioning editor Mm. myself, um, is give me a really good um, kind of snappy subject headline, um, introduce your topic in... I mean, for a book review, I would say, give me a short paragraph, yeah. um, give me a couple of lines about who you are, what you've done in the past, link me to some of your work, um, and then we'll take it from there. I pretty much have a, um, for when I'm querying new editors, I've got a, a template um, right. that I, just, I go back to all the time, because otherwise it's, oh gosh, what have I done? You know, <laughs> So I'll keep my, yeah. and refresh sporadically kind of my, my favourite reviews, mm. the best things that I feel like I've done, um, so that I've always got something um, that I can just set up like that. Yes. And in terms of time frame, that all happens mm. a fair bit of time ahead of the publication of the book. Absolutely. Um, generally, I will pitch to somebody about five five weeks before mm. a book is out. Um, yeah. pe- people generally commission about a month in advance, so I like to get in there a little bit early, especially if it's something that's, that's going to be quite big. And, and that lead time hasn't and, changed that much. I mean, it's the same papers... Absolutely. Online. Yeah, I will generally, um, if I'm reviewing online, I will get about a, about a month's lead time. Sometimes it'll be less, um, mm. but sometimes that's the case for, um, i say sort of physical media as well, for, for yeah. print. Print, um, right. I've have been known to get like a week in advance right. um, for the trade publication Publishers Weekly, which a lot of people get mm. started on, would get a week. Wow. Um, it's a very it's a very quick turnaround time. So at one point I was doing two reviews for them a week. Wow. Um, so reading, constantly followed by constantly writing. Reading. Yeah. And then um, once the draft is submitted, mm-hmm. is there a once or twice? How many times will it be passed um, between an editor? Generally once or twice. Yeah. Um, it's it's very rarely more than that. Right. Um, although I imagine that depends on the writer and the editor. Yeah. Um, I've never had anybody who's been... Um, hugely brutal to me, which is lucky. Mm. Um, but yeah, it can. The, so long as you know the piece that you turn in is not always the piece that will go live, right? Um, or yeah. will be printed. Yes, yeah. I think it's don't have set, write it, submit it, and then just switch off your emotions because there's only so much you can do after that. Right. Yeah, and I've certainly had um, both for criticism and for my my other journalism mm. um, situations when I've not necessarily agreed with an editor's changes. Yeah. And then it's a case of okay, how how important is this to me? 
um, you know, what's what are my reasonings for for really wanting either to keep this line in or to not make these changes? Right. Um, and then it's a case of okay, well, how you know, in balance, how important is this? And if it's really important, if it's central to the piece, I will push back. Right. Yeah. And if not, then it might just be something to sort of think about. Yeah. And I think an, it's another... important to be allowed to have the courage of your convictions, even if you're starting out. Yes. Um, but equally, I've had edits made that I didn't understand at the time um, that now look like they make perfect sense. Yeah. So I feel like particularly writing for the Daily Telegraph, my writing has um, improved, ma- improved massively in the past kind of year and a half that I've been a columnist there. Mm. Um, because they, yeah, it's it's writing for a house style, and that's one right. big thing to remember um, in any kind of journalism, but especially um, in literary criticism, because that gets overlooked a lot. There's a particular way um, mm. we'll be expected to write. Yes. And that, de- that depends, obviously it shifts between print and a lot of online publications, mm. um, but even between individual um, media outlets. It's going to be yes, kind of dramatically course. different. And you can always tell a New Yorker essay. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> if only by the punctuation. Yes, I think it's interesting to talk about um, how a critic assumes a voice sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone is not... Uh, critics are generally mm-hmm. very sharp readers, um, careful writers, mm-hmm. very attuned to how and how other authors right um and their own voices but sometimes i wonder if um critics are just great ventriloquists almost like it's incredible flexibility Mm. um god i think yes absolutely um i think if you kind of stacked up all of my pieces together you would see a similar voice and a similar thread running through them Mm. um but yeah you sort of you tailor your voice and your style to suit the publication you're working for um in a way, it's I'm I'm being given a platform, but it's it's got to meet the needs of the audience who are reading it. Um, there's right. absolutely no use writing, um, you know, something for in the style that I would do for something like BuzzFeed Books. Yes. For the TLS right. or vice versa, <laughs> and actually, that's in a way the hardest thing for a lot of people um, to do is to to know when you can be more chatty and informal for a and still get your point across. Um, when you can tone down the, the slightly academic um, tone of voice. Yeah. And of course, even for somewhere like the TLS or the SRB, um, it's not the same as writing an academic... No, indeed. Like, like a lit review. It's, it's a very different beast. Right, and I think, because a lit review can just be a lot of throat clearing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and I think for certainly for emerging writers who've had that academic background, yes. it's harder to break those habits. Mm. I think in a way... Um, critics who haven't kind of had that university experience are actually in a slightly luckier position because they don't have any training they need to undo. Yes, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, one of the things that's emerged in the conversations um, around this Mm -hmm. Emerging Critics programme is that um, academic writing can be very deferential, which can um, occlude uh, a critic's yeah voice absolutely um and it's it's scary especially if you're a newer writer to be you know sent a book to review by a, an established author yeah and um, if you hate it then how, how do you go about deconstructing it um it's a scary experience but i think you know it's everybody has to have the courage of their opinions and the courage of their um, yes. their own reading so can uh maybe we should talk a little bit about um opinion and it 
place online. Mm-hmm. I suppose Twitter is the place where um, the medium really encourages short, sententious sort of opinions, um, often without evidence. Whereas BuzzFeed might be a bit different, actually, when you've got 10 reasons why. That in itself Mm -hmm. is a method of argument. Absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, BuzzFeed's got a huge amount of scope that it's not currently really exploring. Mm. Um, In its other sections, it does some fantastic long-form reporting that's not quite crossed over into books yet. Um, But the popularity of that section, um, and it's edited by some fantastic people, um, I think it's it could go really exciting places. My, I think, first encounter with BuzzFeed mm. books was definitely lots of lists. Yeah. Um, of, or, and quizzes, lists and quizzes. Yeah. Which character from Jane Austen are you? Yeah, or... this, it's, that's fun stuff. Um, but I think, I, I maintain, although I don't think it's been done yet, there's a way of doing a really good review in list form. Mm. I, I desperately want to just, I think it's really possible. Do... Yeah, break something down into to 15 reasons why this particular book works or doesn't work. Yeah. Um, illustrate it with GIFs, but make it a really good piece. And it's doable. I haven't managed to do it yet, but I'm trying. Right. <laughs> Somebody needs to do it. Are there people whose um, online criticism you particularly admire? Or? I mean, Mal- Mallory Ortberg is fantastic. Yes. Um, her recent book, Text from Jane Eyre, it's fantastic because it's ostensibly telling the plot of Jane Eyre through a short series of text conversations, Mm. but actually um, really unpicks all the problematic sexism and racism um, about the novel. Um, Her text from Pride and Prejudice is this wonderful kind of exploration of the Regency marriage market and how actually Mrs. Bennet maybe kind of had a point. Um, You know, she weaves in um, points about, um, you know, 17th, 18th century... Um, property law in what looks like a fluffy light-hearted piece yes. it, when and it's done well it can be absolutely fantastic so it intensifies a reader's yeah. it looks um, on the surface it looks like it's a cute fluff but actually it's really cleverly done um, and we're seeing more and more of that I think um, and it's interestingly predominantly female voices um, who are yeah. having the having the fun to kind of play around with it and not worry about being taken seriously probably because women historically yeah are taken less seriously. So if you're not going to be, why not just rip the whole rule book out? Um, I mean, I should preface this by saying that there are plenty of male writers and reviewers who I yeah. admire enormously. Um, but I think there's a freedom that comes with um, historically not having your voice taken seriously, which I think is another... A lot of the um, really fantastic, if not, not just literary, but pop culture criticism that I'm seeing mm. is in um, online publications aimed at people of colour, and particularly women of colour. Um, and because they're not, they've always been told they can't meet this particular standard that's been set, they invent their own standards in a lot of ways. It's so much better. And it's, I feel like um, a lot of traditional media can learn so much from that. It's, yes. ex- it's exciting, and that's where the innovation is happening. Mm. Um, and I would love to see that. I would love to see that reflected more um, in traditional media and print media, um, but also the um, historical. I guess, mentoring and support that happened through kind of the editorial chain traditionally yeah. be reflected as well. I think the, the two camps, it's a, it's a Venn diagram, really, and there's a yeah, big yeah, overlapping yeah. section. Right. And, um, I, and everybody can learn so much from each other. 
I'm not running roughshod over print and um, kind of a st- no, I don't think so. because I don't think so. that's what I read. You know, yeah. I, as much as I will read Book Riot, right? Right, know, right, right. My stacks of the TLS, the Economist, the SLB yeah. are piled high yeah. in my study. These things are complementary. Yes, and um, I think it's interesting that you know you can um, sort of click on something just as an aside mm-hmm. in a in a short break yes. and have fun and have it sort of percolate through still mm-hmm. even uh, but that to to sit down and read a long review mm. is work yeah it absolutely mm. is um, um, and i think there's there's an increasing appetite online for long form work mm. um, it's it's still rarer than i think it should be um, yeah. you know people are I would say people, I, um, outlets are often going to take the, what's going to bring in the page views and the appetizers. Yes. Um, it's much harder to monetize those decent, chunky, long form pieces, mm-hmm. but there's an appetite for them. And I think, um, nobody wants to see that lost. Yeah. Nobody wants to see good writing disappear. Um, because that is the content. That is the content everybody's searching for. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the quizzes and the lists, they're ephemera. Um, they, they are nice. So they're complementary, but then they're never going to be essential part. It's always going to be good writing, good yeah. writing about good writing. Yes, I think there's there are a lot of opportunities for good writing to explore the new formats that are coming out. Yeah, um, and I'd like to see that done more. I'd like to see more mm. critics be more adventurous and playful. Um, that never means turning your back on or completely moving away from the traditional format, mm. because there's a richness to that. There's yes. a the level of detail you can get into that you can't right. anywhere else. One of the things that I think is interesting that might be happening a little bit is that um, the, the middle length, i.e. the long-form piece yes. of journalism, is something that people are forgetting. I think that a lot of book proposals, mm-hmm. you know, are things that, or books that you read, non-fiction mm-hmm. in particular, they can be, um, you can just sort of be reading and you think, well, this was a great introduction and a great first few chapters and then a massive bit of padding in the middle yeah. and an interesting conclusion exactly not everything has to be long form and that's no. absolutely fine yeah it was a discussion was it in 2014 rather than in 2015 or maybe it was at the very beginning of this year about the absence of books on television yes um, i mean that that recurs constantly um and the, ab- the thing is the absence of books on television is absolutely dreadful um the state of arts coverage mm what's out there is fantastic there needs to be so much more of it I don't think anyone would argue against that yeah and the people commissioning it clearly there's such a richness in of sort of book vlogging yes it shows there's such an audience out there that's the thing as um art sections and newspapers are being cut because we're told there's no readership Mm. this is flourishing online so somewhere this message is getting lost yes Um, it's really just a case of how can we make this um compensated for the people making it like the majority of um book vloggers are not getting paid for the huge amounts of effort they're putting in Mm. to having some really great and intensive debates about literature Um, and yes a lot of it is debates about young adult literature but that's as valid a genre as anything else Um, and i think that's one interesting thing that the democratization Mm. of online debate is getting right is that it's applying that level of um, kind of serious criticism to genre fiction so whether it's yeah. sci-fi or young adult or romance that's getting picked apart um, and celebrated in just the same way that literary fiction historically has been um, yes and with with a sort of sense of um, 
so 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 the tools and the tropes yeah. are still being mobilized absolutely and people are describe i mean often you see people describing things maybe without using the rhetorical term or something yeah. like that but it's it's still uh, an enlightening reading yeah. of the text mm-hmm. for the reader or viewer yeah i mean one of the yeah. first big um, book sites out there it's called, it's called Smart Bitches Trashy Books. Uh, it's a fantastic, um, really serious, but serious in um, intent, but quite light-hearted in execution, um, series of, review, of reviews about romance fiction. Yeah. Um, brilliantly feminist. Um, te- frequently go viral, um, as, in as much as that means anything. And it's, it's some really fantastic stuff there, and that's not something that you would necessarily get covered... Um, we certainly would get covered in, in a lot of publications. Yes, that's yeah. certainly true. Um, I remember reading Janice Radway's Reading the Romance, or being assigned that, mm. in actually a book history class. Interesting. Um, and it blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Just in terms of, you know, what yeah. you could do even within academic criticism. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's it's one of the reasons that makes it such an exciting time. Uh, and yes, sometimes it means you're talking to a particularly niche audience, mm. Um, mm. but that's the same no matter what you're. And that niche about. audience is often, is always, yeah. in fact, actually, the more niche it is, the better informed. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, um, you know, if people are worried about a level, you know, things, be- criticism becoming middle brow or mm. low brow or yeah. lacking in intellectual rigor. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that the digital revolution has yeah. brought is, I mean, it's the celebration of nerddom. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> all um, and an, there's an exactitude that's demanded. Yeah, exactly. Often, rather than a sloppiness. Yes, certainly. And I yeah. think, um, you know, yes, the reviews of, of somebody who's been um, an established critic are going to be different in tone and certainly different in um in expertise than um a teenager vlogging about her you know the the hunger games or something um and yes that's not you can probably argue that's it's lacks that level of intellectual rigor um but it does what it does for its audience very well and i think it's hugely important and actually what we should be doing is nurturing these voices and nurturing their audience um and making sure that we've got trained critics for the future and a receptive, willing-to-pay audience of the future. Yes. And I think, I think that is one of the things, that you come to something and you start listening to it or mm. reading it mm. for free, and then when you're asked, if you do value it, yeah. if, you know, if you're able to, um, even, even when yeah. you might not be able to, I always feel a pull to yeah. support. Exactly. If you voices. can support it, you can, I guess, single yeah. boost it by tweeting about it so right. that other people can support it. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a tricky one. Um, there's the mm. mo- the old models of fi- of um, funding it, of financing it, are very different from what they were. Yeah. Um, and have they? I mean, for a long time, you know, at the beginning of blogging. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, I have to confess, I was blogging literally before it was a term. Right. We used to call it web blogging. Yeah. <laughs> I feel so old. <laughs> and it would be monetized by Google ads. Sometimes, yeah, and sometimes. Then, but even then, I don't think anybody ever earned a huge amount from no, it. Traditionally, I mean, what would happen is it would get turned into a book. Right. And I guess that still happens a lot with um, sort of the YouTube generation. Absolutely. Yes, the book of the vlog. Yeah. Which seems a strange transition. Absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, it's really interesting, the fact that those two 
they still go hand in hand. Nobody's yeah. replacing. Mm. Nobody's replacing the book. Yeah. So that's the medium that everybody still comes back to. And a blogger will become a columnist. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting position. Yes, to be well, in. I think that's something that's come mm. out in our conversations, that mm. critics are all... The idea of the critics are sitting in their ivory mm. tower is, you know, and yeah. passing, dispensing judgment is... If that's ever been true, it's certainly not true now. Almost never been the yeah. case, I, I think. Exactly. I mean, God, Muriel Spark, as I'm sure Alan Taylor's yeah. mentioned, was um, a prolific critic. Absolutely. Um, mostly known for fiction, but had... Her literary criticism of her journalism were amazing. Yeah, and even the most, even the most, you know, if we go back even another century yeah. and a half, even the most sort of uh, uh, vitriolic nineteenth-century mm. critics, yes. they were all second-rate novelists. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and no, um, no, <laughs> um, they were. I'm t- thinking about John Gibson Lockett, who was yes. known as the Scorpion, um, and. Um, you know, he wrote endless, endless, rapturous reviews of mm. Walter Scott's novels. Mm. And then 60 years later, his own novels were panned by the late yeah. 19th century critics. Exactly. But, um, I no, mean, it doesn't uh, always follow you can do one and the other, although yeah. plenty of people do. Yeah. And I think to have a, um, to have a sustainable career as a, any kind of writer, mm. you have to be able to move between genres and move between formats. Yeah. Um, and that's probably my bias thrown because I can't imagine doing anything else. That's how my brain functions. Um, it's what I love doing. But you have to have a degree of flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't... I, it never occurred to me as an option that I could just write literary criticism or literary journalism. Right. Um, certainly there have been periods um, where that's the majority of what I've done. Yeah. Um, but I think I sort of entered the market at just the point when that wasn't a, a full-time job. Yeah. And I think that's a shame. I think it's a massive shame. Yeah. Um, I think it's worked out quite well for me, but yeah. it's a pity that it's not... I mean, the model of journalism is changing so much. What a journalistic career looks like, what my career looks like now, right. Right. will be completely different to somebody coming up, even starting mm. now, I guess. Mm. And it must give... Because everyone is a freelancer, mm. or m- more and more yeah. increasingly, um, people are freelance, they have time to... It, 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 seem, it seems to me that perhaps people are working on books earlier, mm. um, which, of course, is not something that is necessary. You know, that, so you're a journalist and a non-fiction writer and a critic all yeah. at the same time um, because all of those things are sort of overlapping yeah. anyway. Um, but at the same time, you know, working on a, a, a book is often a, you know, a project that you don't get paid for until well, the absolutely. very end and even then. yeah. Um, I mean, I think one of the biggest questions that journalists of my mm. kind of my generation and I guess um, career level are, have is okay. How do I pay the rent? Yeah. Occasionally, the really established ones get to ask, "How do I pay the mortgage?" Right. But I right. can't even think about that. Yeah. Um, and it's it's an important question, um, and not enough discussion is happening about mm. which publications pay well. Um, which publications don't? Who you're going to have to chase five times? Right. These are the. This is the nitty gritty. And whether it's worth chasing them five times. Like them. if it is worth, if you yeah. do have to chase them five times, it sort of indicates that there will be a response. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's these are the the questions that people who've um, mm. who've been lucky enough to have staff jobs for a long time yeah. haven't had to face as much. Um, but obviously, every really everybody's in a position now. Very few. There are very few staff jobs or newspapers at all, let alone in the arts. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult one. And I think um, part of this programme's remit needs to be as much about those factual details as um, the overall craft. 
And there's, there's an increasing amount of, um, of information that's accessible. There's a, an actual website called Who Pays Writers. Yes. It's a, it's a database. It is mm. invaluable. Um, and that's, yeah, I think that's, a, yeah, that's every bit as important um, a tool in somebody's arsenal as the elements of style. Right, indeed. Because um, the elements of style are fantastic, but they do not pay the rent. <laughs> they certainly aren't going to pay the mortgage. <gasps> that's a pretty great way. I think that might be a good place to finish. <laughs> Thanks for listening. In the next episode, I'll be talking with mentor David Robinson about his first meeting with his group of emerging critics.